Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. guys can have a seat. Um, glad y'all are here, guys, uh, sincerely, especially after a long, fun night like last night. Go Frogs. That was epic. We were on fire. Um, besides the point, we're supposed to be preaching today. Um, my name's Nathan, by the way, for those of y'all that don't know me. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Um, we have been going through the book of Galatians recently, so if you have your Bible Go ahead and flip to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, specifically, we're going to start in verse, verse 8. Um, we've kind of taken a break. We had fall break. We did a panel last week. Um, and seriously, we threw that number up there. If you still have questions from the panel last week, don't be afraid to, to hit us up. Um, we would love to chat with you about it. Um, but before we jump into Galatians chapter 4, uh, I'm going to just share a little piece of my, my life with you. Uh, I get stereotyped pretty often as the guy who just— wants to live in Colorado and is like the granola dude for a good reason. I do. And I love those things. Uh, in college every summer I would take, uh, at least a week, sometimes more to go backpack. Um, a lot of my friends were like wilderness guides and I was connected to that kind of world. And so I would always road trip to Colorado. Has, who all in here has road tripped from Texas to Colorado before? Yeah. Okay. Good fair amount. So you, you'll probably know what I'm, I'm talking about. I don't know Colorado without a road trip. Um, it's like 12, 13 hours. Some people think that's insane, but, um, I love it. And I'll always choose that if the time allows rather than flying. Um, it's just memorable. Um, and there's one time when I think of the road trip, I think of this moment specifically that I'm going to share with you, but to give you some context first, I, about a month before I graduated high school, um, my parents walked me into the living room and kind of out of the blue told me they were getting a divorce totally wrecked my world, had no clue what to do, and I kind of went through that last month of high school and graduating and all that kind of stuff, just wondering what in the world, like my life feels like a lie in some ways. And so anyways, I graduate, spend the summer kind of just romping around, doing little things, and then I come to TCU. That's what brought me here to Fort Worth. Um, And then my freshman year was basically experiencing like domino after domino of like all these little things that just seemed to be crumbling in my life and things that happened a lot in light of the divorce, it felt like. But there was my little brother. So my parents separated. Obviously, my dad got a new home. That was weird to me, of like coming back home to visit and he's not there. Um, my little brother started to spiral in some ways. I think because of the divorce, he was about five years younger than me. And so he was in middle school at the time. And I don't think he was taking it well. And some pretty gnarly stuff was happening in his life. Um, my mom and my grandma at one point came uh, for during Thanksgiving. My grandma came into town And on their way to the Thanksgiving meal, they get T-boned by this uh, speeding driver. And that is a catalyst for my grandma's health decline. And now she uh, is living like with assisted living. My mom takes care of her. There's a a whole lot of stuff there. Um, And it just felt like thing, heavy thing after heavy thing after heavy thing was just falling on me. I wasn't doing well in school, I think a lot because of that. And then also I was the typical freshman who was just doing honestly whatever I want. I was like, no parents, I can... I can escape from all this. And so I was making terrible decisions and was just trying to honestly probably just suppress a lot of that was going inside of me. 
Anyways, at the end of the year, um, I was thinking I was going to transfer. I didn't feel like I belonged, like I had any friends. I was feeling the weight of everything that was going at home. I was feeling so discouraged, so heavy, so burdened, just so weighty. Um, And I get up and I take a backpacking trip to Colorado, got invited to go. So we're driving from Austin, Texas, all the way to the San Juan Mountain Range, which is kind of like in the southwest, southwest corner of Colorado. Beautiful, if you've never been. If you've ever taken that drive, and for those of you who haven't, um, you go through Texas, and you go through the Panhandle, West Texas, and it is flat, and there is nothing. It is like desolate of desolate. There's just a bunch of dirt and dust, honestly, Um, and like a little coyote kind of howling at Cadillac cars. Um, But that's it. So you're driving. There's nothing to see for like most of the drive. But then you kind of get into New Mexico. It's you start seeing some like rocks pop up, kind of. They're just glorified hills. And then you finally cross into the state line of Colorado and you see the like welcome to colorful Colorado sign and you stop, you take a picture because you're touristy and everybody does it. And then you keep driving. And when you go to the San Juan Mountain Ranges, there's this pass that you take and you're looping around this mountain. And you're like, sweet, I'm starting to see trees. I'm actually climbing in some elevation. Here's a mountain. And then you round the corner. And this is what I'll never forget. And every time I think of road tripping, this is what I think of. There's this moment when you round the corner of that pass and the sky just opens up and you see this magnificent view of the entire front range. And it's like you can see all the Rockies all the way down to the west. The sun is setting. I remember we, uh, we had the windows down. We were listening to music, some of our favorite music at the time. And, and I remember in that moment, I felt so totally free. I felt absolutely weightless and like nothing in the world was holding me down. When before, I was feeling heavy, heavy and burdened and at the end of myself in that one like 30-second moment, looking out at the mountains, windows down, feeling the cool breeze in my air, seeing the color of the skyline, I felt absolutely free and weightless. And there's still moments when when I get that, and I'm sure you can relate to that. We all love the windows down type of experience and freedom. You're driving to your best friend's house or something like that. The sun is setting. You're chasing it down. You've got your favorite song on. You can feel the rush of the wind. You feel free. We all know what that feels like. So you can call it peace, you can call it joy, you can call it freedom, you can call it even a clear conscience maybe, but we are all searching for those kind of moments. We are all searching for that sense of weightlessness. We all crave that windows down, mountaintop, sun on the horizon type of freedom. But here's the reality. We are all bogged down and burdened by something. And I would argue that whether we like to admit it to ourselves or not, we are actually all enslaved to something, and we all know what it's like to not feel free. You see, you can feel, you can tangibly feel the difference between freedom and slavery. You know what it's like to have that windows-down, mountaintop experience of freedom, and you also know what it's like to feel enslaved to something. Let's just start looking at the the day-to-day, week-to-week, obvious things that we kind of complain about all the time. We all get what it's like to be uh, enslaved, to feel enslaved to our calendars and our schedules and the dings on our phone, uh, the demands of other people and deadlines for class and the internship that we have and the ever-growing pile of laundry and wreck of a room that symbolizes how busy and chaotic your week has been. We all know what it's like to feel enslaved to that. And we all know what it feels like to be enslaved by the demands of what other people want from you and the pressure to perform. And we all understand what it's like to be trapped in the vicious cycle of want and desire for the material things. 
of needing, feeling like you need that next new fit, the next new pair of shoes, the new hat, the new phone, or whatever it might be. You're always wanting, and it feels like it's a trap. And we talk about those things all the time, but then there's also the things that we don't talk about so often. But I think they're still just as obvious and evident. We're all familiar with, and we all know what it's like to feel enslaved by our own personal burdens, our baggage, and our personal insecurities. We all know what it's like to be enslaved by and feel trapped by the voice in our head that says things like, no one is ever going to understand you. You have to prove yourself. Or I can't believe I did that again. Or even just the familiar voice that just seems to come up every day when you wake up of, do I really know who I am? Am I really living with purpose? Do I know what I'm about? Again, we all know what it's like to feel slave to our insecurities and those kinds of things. So let's be honest. You're at church. You're listening to me. We talk about freedom in Christ all the time, but how many of us are actually experiencing that windows-down type of freedom in Christ? Because it's there. It's on the table. It's offered to you. It's available to everyone, and in Christ, you have full access to that kind of freedom, to a freedom that is beyond you, and that is what leads us to Rome, uh, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 8. We went through Romans like two years ago, and I'm still stuck in it. Um, but Paul here, before we jump in, is talking to a group of people, the Galatian believers, whose lives were changed by the gospel, and they were walking in a relationship with the Lord, and they were doing really, really well for a period of time. They were living in freedom and experiencing the fullness of joy with the God of the universe. They were living lives of compassion and grace and mercy and service to one another, and it was a beautiful picture of a beautiful fellowship and community bonded together by Jesus. And Paul even references how well they take care of him in our passage, kind of around verse 12. He says, you took care of me so well. It reflected the heart and the actions of Jesus himself. But then this group of people comes in to this church in Galatia, and they're known as the, uh, what Paul refers to them as the false brothers or the agitators. And they are leading people away from the foundational truth that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, not by earning or by the law or by any certain way of doing things. The way of salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. And so Paul writes to them, the Galatian believers, realizing that they are drifting away from that truth, realizing that they are adding to the gospel and going back to their old understanding of how life with God actually worked. And so join me in, uh, in verse 8. I'll throw it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Formerly, you were enslaved. If you're going to highlight anything in this chapter, highlight and underline that. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Maybe even circle that sucker. Contextually speaking, um, here's what Paul is referring to. The people he's speaking to were known as Gentiles, right? The Galatian believers, a lot of them were previously known as Gentiles, which meant that they weren't Jewish people, and they had no previous affiliation with Yahweh, the one true God. They were a pagan people who worshipped pagan gods and performed pagan rituals to get right, quote-unquote right, with their so-called gods, which Paul says weren't actually gods. Then we see in chapter 3, before, uh, before this, 
that they heard the gospel of Jesus, they received his spirit by hearing with faith, and by grace, through that faith, they were now called sons and daughters and heirs in a relationship with the one true God. And it changed everything about their lives. Um, and now, Paul is essentially repeating himself like he did in chapter 3. He said, you, you heard by faith, you were saved, your lives have been changed. Um, and in chapter 3, verse 3, just to remind us of what he said, he said, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own flesh or in your own human effort? And then he says the same thing here in chapter 4, verse 9, when he says, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world and be slave to them again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid you I've labored in vain. That last part where he's saying, talking about days and months and seasons and years, it's like, why are you bringing that up? It's all a reference to a wide range of Jewish uh, festivals and ceremonies and celebrations. And so what Paul is getting at is the Galatian believers are returning to those things and they're returning to man-made stuff. They're returning to worldly principles and structures as if they had totally forgotten it wasn't about upholding religious rituals and traditions anymore, but about a relationship. And he says, how foolish can you be to do that? Paul is essentially calling them out and saying, turning to the Jewish law, which again, wasn't all bad. We, we dog on the Jewish law a lot, but it was put in place for a very good reason for a short period of time. Um, but turning to that and uh, returning to man-made stuff like that would, just be, would be just like returning to their paganism, which also serves kind of as a, uh, another call out to any Jewish believers reading this because he just equated their religious rituals, their celebrations, and their festivals to paganism if they're doing them and observing them in an effort to make themselves right with God. He's saying that in light of the gospel, turning or returning to these things would be focusing on religion, which ultimately gets you nowhere, rather than focusing on a relationship with the one true God who ultimately provides them life to the full and freedom. So to return or return to these things, he's saying, would be very contrary to the very spirit of Christianity and the message of Jesus and his gospel. So that's what he's referring to in in this context. Now let's think about it in in our context. Again, we all know, and we all know what it's like to feel enslaved by um, our insecurities, all that kind of stuff. We're familiar with the the desire to search out freedom for ourselves, right? We all want that windows down kind of clear conscience, uh, I'm at peace kind of freedom. But here's what tends to happen when we search that out. We all run to things and systems and people and abide by a law of life, or more simply put, just a, a way of doing things to provide us with that sense of freedom that we all crave. Or in Paul's language, we turn to those things that by nature are not God's and to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. He's not holding back any of his language here. And in light of that, I think we all tend to lean one of two ways when we turn to those things. For some of us in this room, uh, we tend to gravitate towards a law of life and a way of doing things that looks a lot like legalism, which is exactly uh, and very similar to what the Galatians are, are dealing with here. And then for other personalities in the room, for some of us, we tend to gravitate towards a law of life and a way of doing things that looks a lot like license. Let me explain the difference between the two. Legalism, legalism relies on a way of doing things that depends on doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. Legalism says in order to experience freedom, 
then I have to abide by a certain set of rules and principles and that if a thing like freedom can be found and experienced, then I can earn it by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. License says, screw that. Freedom is found in my own way. Freedom is found by not abiding in rules. Freedom is found by not tying me down. So don't put me in a box. Don't tie me down. And personally, I have been in both camps, right? Especially as it relates to my relationship with the Lord, depending on the stage and the season of my life. I've definitely found myself leaning more towards, I've got to do this right. I've got to make sure I'm perfected this, and this is going to earn my, uh, my, my stuff with the Lord. And then I've also found myself, like my freshman year of college, thinking like, screw that. I'm going to experience freedom on my own and do my own thing and do whatever the heck I want. Don't put me in a box. But to use one example, if you're the kind of person who tends to gravitate toward the legalistic way of things, then odds are, just like me, this was my experience, you think that God's delight in you is solely contingent on how good and how fruitful and how long your quiet time was yesterday morning. Some of you in here right now are like, holy crap, I didn't even have a quiet time yesterday morning. Thanks for calling me out. But what begins to happen is that if that's you and that's what you're thinking, you begin to drift and unintentionally, right, unintentionally focus more on religion than you are on a relationship with Jesus. And you keep discovering over and over again that you're comparing yourself to the person next to you. The person next to you who seems to have a rich walk with Jesus, and they say they have an hour-long quiet time every day. But you, your quiet time was five minutes, ten minutes at best. You got distracted the entire time. You start discovering that you are craving and desire this deep life of prayer and communion with God, and you want to hear his voice in your life and all these things, and yet, instead, you find that the margin of your evenings is spent binging that Netflix show and that in the mornings you are waking up at the very last minute just to soak up every ounce of rest before you have to go to class. And the result of all of that is that you feel like your faith is actually suffocating. Anyone in here probably never thought your faith could be suffocating. But you feel like your faith is suffocating because you don't think that you're getting it right. And you feel enslaved by the belief that you have to observe days and months and seasons and quiet times and scripture memorization and evangelism and involvement in biblical community rightly. As if God sent his son to die on a Christ because you got things right in the first place. But on the other hand, if you tend to gravitate, you're like, that's not me, and you tend to gravitate more towards, uh, towards license, then you're sitting here thinking, duh, you're going to feel trapped if you are trying to keep a bunch of rules. Duh, you're going to feel enslaved and suffocated if you're trying to keep a bunch of outdated ancient rules from this old text. And if that's you, I love the honesty there, um, but I think if you're honest with yourself, your way of doing things is, feels just as suffocating and you feel just as enslaved to the idea and the belief that you have to get things right. I've got to get this right. Because externally, things, the things that you choose to do and the things that, uh, that you choose and you do might make your life look fun and free and young and wild and reckless and it's good and, and amazing. But internally, those very things are actually robbing you of your freedom. Externally, it might mean like, yeah, let's go rage. Let's go out. No parents, freedom. I'm in college. Let's go. But internally and underneath, you're not experiencing freedom at all. At least that was my experience. And what I found is that we tend to attach ourselves to people and things and lifestyles, not because we think that they're going to set us free, 
but because we're terrified of what life might look like without them. And so we feel enslaved to them and trapped by them. And we all know what it's like to be driven to make decisions and choices out of our insecurities, as if they have mastery over us and as if we're a slave to them. And Paul is saying here, formerly, when you did not know God, you were a slave to your insecurities. You were a slave to things that make for terrible gods. You were a slave to the belief that you have to earn your place before an overly critical and quick-tempered God. You were a slave to weak and worthless things. Pretty big reality. But elsewhere in a letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes uh, in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your sin. You were confined to and trapped by and were slave to the passions of your flesh and the desires of your body. But then in verse 5, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Formerly you were dead, but now you've been made alive by God. And then in Galatians 4, he's saying the same exact thing. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. But now, you know God, and you are known by God. And to know God is the essence of the Christian life. John uh, chapter 17, verse 3, if we want to throw that up, says this. It says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here's the wonderful part, which Paul reminds us of here in, uh, in Galatians 4, is that we can indeed come to know God, but it's not because of anything that we were capable of or anything that we did, but rather because God has made himself known to us. And I love how you see all over scripture that similar type of cause and effect. We know God because God first made himself known to us, right? It's, and then in other places it says we love God because he first loved us. That's 1 John four nineteen. And then we see we forgive as we've been forgiven and so on, so forth. The list goes on. Uh, and I love that. It's always because God initiates things first, not because of anything that you do. Now, Paul, in another letter, the guy loved to write. He wrote a lot of letters, this time to a group of people called the Romans, um, tells us of a beautiful, liberating, freeing reality if we are in Christ and therefore know God and are known by God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2 goes on and says, the law of the spirit of life, God's spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back, but you received a, s- a spirit that set you free. You received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so the realities that we come to see here in that text is that A, your sin no longer condemns you, which is amazing if you're in Christ, and B, God has given us his spirit to set us free, from the law and of sin and death and slavery, and a spirit who seals our adoption to him as our father, which is the best relationship you could ever be in. And that should be just like the windows down, cool breeze of air that refreshes your soul. That God has made himself known to us so that we may no longer be bound by the burdens that enslave us. It's up there if you want to write it down. The burdens that enslave us like sin and death and other weak and worthless things in the language of Paul. And instead, he's made himself known to us so that we can experience the fullness of freedom 
found in Christ Jesus through the power of his spirit. Now, if that kind of freedom is offered to us, and if we can claim and even maybe even have claimed that freedom if we're in Christ, then why in the world would we ever turn back? If we've been set free, we've been given a spirit that has set us free, then why would we ever turn back to the things that enslave us and we know are not going to turn out any good? I think that's exactly what Paul is asking the Galatians. So in verse 9 and then all the way through verse 20, that's what he's asking. And uh, there's a lot here, and I'm just going to summarize it for you, but you should go read the, the entire thing. But he says, how can you turn back? You used to imitate Christ. I've seen it firsthand when you took care of me. He says, you, you received me as Christ Jesus yourself. And then he asks, what has become of your blessedness? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? What's happened to you? These false brothers, these agitators are leading you astray and only, he says, want to make much of themselves. And then he ends in verse 20 saying, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. He's confused. And again, let's look at what he's saying in context first. He's talking about how foolish it is for the Galatians to return to the law. Um, it would be kind of like a full-grown adult athlete uh, who rides bikes and wins races for a living, going back to using training wheels to become a better, faster, stronger cyclist. That's counterintuitive. You don't do that. You guys remember the, the purpose of the law? It was supposed to serve as a guardian, is what we, we found out. A guardian and a tutor for a temporary amount of time until there was no need for it anymore. And now that Christ died and was raised, there is no need for it anymore. Just like you don't need a tutor anymore for a class that you've already, hopefully, passed, right? And if you missed that sermon about the law, um, you can listen to it on our podcast, but I basically just summed it up in 30 seconds when everyone else had to listen to it for 30 minutes. Um, but he's saying it is foolish to go back to the law. It is foolish to go back to what once enslaved you, which is the same thing for us. So why, why do we? Why do we go back to the habits that we say we would give up? Why do we go back to being driven by fear of man and insecurities and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, and I think at base level, it's because we fall under the influence of our flesh or the world, again, rather than letting ourselves be led by the Spirit who set us free. And the enemy loves to leverage both of those things. The enemy loves to leverage both the flesh and the world to keep us from experiencing the fullness of freedom offered to us and found in Christ. And I think we return to the flesh specifically because it's familiar. And we've built habits and rhythms and ways of thinking in our lives that aren't so easily broken. And those things can fall anywhere on the spectrum that we talked about earlier regarding uh, habits that tend towards legalism or tend tend to move towards license. Um, let, me, let me paint it for you this way. When I was preparing this sermon, I read through this entire passage, uh, ch chapter 4, verse 8, all the way through 5-1. Um, I read through it with a friend, and I said, said, dude, there is a lot in this massive text. Thank you, Ben, for always giving me the large passages. Um, there's a lot here, and I honestly have no clue what direction I'm supposed to take this. We both sat there in silence for just a moment, um, and then we both let out that collective, yeah, which showed me he had empathy for uh, how tough this passage was. But then after a couple more seconds uh, of silence, looking through everything here, he looked up and he s said, and he goes, you know, there's a lot of dog vomit in this passage. 
very fascinating thing to say about God's word. Um, but here's what he was referring to and what he meant. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, it'll be up on the screen, says, they, referring, again, so this is Peter writing this time, and he's talking about false teachers and false brothers again, which I'm reading all this, and I see that come up all the time in the New Testament, which means it's a thing that you should watch out for, but he's referring to false teachers. He says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when, when people escape from the defilements of the world through the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus, and then they get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are just like a dog who returns to its own vomit. Pretty gnarly language. Pretty gnarly reality, which is why when Paul says, I wish you could hear my tone for I am perplexed about you, I don't hear him saying, you idiots, out of this like angry annoyance. I hear him asking, what are you doing? Why are you going back to this again? You know what it leads to in the same kind of gentle and loving yet worried and concerned tone a parent would use with a child who keeps returning to a folly that has no benefit to them and might actually even be harming them. Paul then goes on in verses 21 through 31, which again is a lot, and I'm just going to summarize it for you here, but he's reminding the Galatian believers of a story that they would be super familiar with. He's basically comparing slavery and freedom and reminding the Galatians that they are children of the promise of God, and therefore they are children of freedom. And he ends that whole passage with Galatians 5 verse 1, which is up here, and ends our passage for today. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been set free. Don't return to slavery. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. But how do you live and stand firm in that freedom? How do you keep yourself from returning to what he calls a yoke of slavery? First, we need to define uh, freedom, and we need to define freedom as it's understood in the kingdom of Jesus and how Paul is using it. Um, here, Paul is saying that Christ has set us free, specifically, again, in context from Jewish ceremonial laws. What he's not saying is that Christ has set us free from obedience to the Lord, um, or to use the language that we've been using today, Christ has set us free from a legalistic way of doing things, but he hasn't set us free to give us license to do whatever the heck we want. Uh, I was sitting with another friend, different one this time. This one, his name was Josh. Um, and I was asking him to help me with this s sermon. I need a lot of help. Um, but he asked me to define freedom. He was like, how would you define freedom in Christ? And I sat there and I started defining it as, <clears throat> as the absence of things. I started defining it as freedom from feeling the need to earn my way to salvation, the freedom from things like anxiety and fear and insecurity and anxiety, shame, bitterness, those kinds of things. Um, and where we ultimate, ultimately ended up landing on is that freedom in the kingdom of Jesus is about freedom from and not freedom to. Um, here's how another pastor put it. Freedom. In the mind of Jesus and in the mind of writers of the New Testament, like Paul, freedom is about freedom from our slavery. First and foremost, above all, to sin and also to the desire of our flesh. Freedom is not 
to do whatever the heck we want, to enjoy and pursue anything we want, to uh, sleep with whoever we want, or to buy and sell and say and do whatever we want with nobody or nothing there to stop us as long as it doesn't hurt another person, which he says would be terrible logic in the first place. You see, we tend to forget that the call of Jesus is to take up your cross and deny yourself. That's what freedom looks like in the kingdom of Jesus. In the Gospels, we don't see Jesus say, hey, I see that you're broken. Let me set you free from what bogs you down so that you can go live your life and do you, and I'm just going to be here to like empower you, and you get to do your thing, and you do it with a guilt-free conscience while you do it, and you follow your heart. No, uh, we do not see that. Over and over again, we see him say that the heart of man is defiled by sin, and that we must take up our cross and deny ourselves if we are to follow him. We see him say, oh, you want freedom? You want joy and peace and you want life to the full? Great, it's there for you. There's your cross, go and die, right? He says, watch how I do it and then rinse and repeat. And then he goes to a cross and gets nailed to it and dies. Death to self is the way to life and freedom in the kingdom of Jesus. And some people just flat out aren't willing to do that, right? And I understand that. In Matthew 19, we see one guy who flat out walked away from Jesus in sorrow. It says, in great sorrow because he didn't want to deny himself. He had too many worldly possessions. A lot of us, I think what that highlights, tend to only live in obedience to Jesus in the areas of life where we agree with Jesus, right? And where we disagree with Jesus, we tend to just take it as license to do whatever we want. And that is a tragic misunderstanding of how to experience the fullness of freedom in life with Jesus. So we have to do a couple things if we're to live out this freedom. The first thing is this, uh, just to give you some practical things to do. The first thing that you have to do is you have to identify what's enslaving you. You have to identify what's enslaving you and what you're running back to. What are you running back to? What are you naturally gravitating towards? What are the little gods in your life that you serve? What are the weak and worthless things that are just a drudgery to do and suffocating and robbing you of your freedom? It might be legalistic things. It might be license. But you are a slave, just like we saw in that Second Peter passage. You are a slave to whatever controls you and whatever has influence over you. And for some of you, that might be insecurity. And for others, it just might, out, it just might be desire. And if you're like me, it's probably both. Um, I'm the most broken in this room. Guarantee it. So step one is identifying those things, right? Identify what's enslaving you. But here, hear me say this. It is not enough to simply just stay at identification. I think one of the biggest traps that we all tend to fall into is believing that insight is the solution. And we forget that action should be taken upon the insight that we gain. It's one thing to name and identify what's going on in your heart, your mind, and your soul, but it's an entirely different thing to actually do something about it. And hear me say that putting a name on what's going on in your world is really hard work. And that's coming from someone who has a really hard time articulating what's going on in my heart and my brain. But we miss out on half the battle and we don't seek change uh, in light uh, of that if we're just staying with the insight and identification. And this is why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 19, that he is in anguish until he sees Christ is formed in you. 
And the key word, if you're going to highlight anything there in verse 19, the key word is formed, which refers to shaping you, refers to molding you, and it's about your spiritual formation, which is step two. If step one is identify what's enslaving you, step two is to seek out your spiritual formation. That's a uh, churchy phrase. Here's, uh, here's kind of what it means. Spiritual formation is the process of having the image of Jesus formed in you for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And if you want to know where that quote came from, she's sitting up there. Her name is Amy Foster. Um, spiritual formation is the process of having the image of Jesus formed in you for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Because remember, knowledge and insight aren't enough to actually bring about transformation. You have to have practices and disciplines in your life that actually bring about change. Knowledge and insight of what's enslaving you doesn't mean that you're free, which is why you have to seek out your spiritual formation. And here's the reality that I want you to know. Everyone, every one of us in this room is in a process of formation. Every one of us in this room is being formed by something. The things that you do form you. The habits that you have in your life shape you. So if the things that you do and the habits that you have come from the world or your own destructive desire and sinful flesh and passions, then you are going to look a whole lot like the world. But if the things that you do and the habits you create are centered around knowing God and a relationship with Jesus, then you're going to look a whole lot like Jesus. And the goal then for believers is just that, to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to grow in Christ likeness. And we are intended to work towards that goal and grow in that direction. But practically speaking, what does that look like? What does the process of being formed in the image of Jesus look like on a tangible level? What do I do? Um, I'm going to list out some habits and spiritual disciplines that I think will form you. Um, this is not exhaustive. There are a ton more, and if you want to talk more about it, I get jazzed about this. I know Amy gets jazzed about this, so find one of us. Um, a lot of this is pulled from teachings of Amy and from this book called The Practices of Spiritual Disciplines by a guy named Don Whitney, um, which I would love to recommend to any of you. I have some extra copies, but the first thing that I think is the most important habit and spiritual discipline to have in your life is to just simply engage with God's Word and having a regular intake of it, right? Again, we saw John chapter 17, verse 3 say, eternal life is this, to know God and to know Jesus whom he sent. We have a God who wants to be known by us. John 1, verse 1 says it is th that this word, this scripture, this Bible that's in front of all of us is the living word of the living God. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is the living God right in front of you, and you can hold it. And no habit or discipline is more paramount than the intake and engaging with God's word. Nothing can substitute it, um, and there's simply just no healthy Christian life or discipleship to Jesus apart from it. Because in it, you find the entire story, right? From start to finish, you see the story of creation. You were created to be in a relationship with God. You see that we are now fallen. We have the sin that separated us from God. And then you see how Jesus put in this plan of redemption into motion, sent his son to save you and bring you back near to him. You who once were far off have been brought near through Christ. And then you see the end of the story that God restores everything back to its original design. And there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more grief, no more pain. You get to see that story by reading his word. You get 
to see the character of God, what his will uh, and the ways of him actually look like, what it actually looks like to repent and believe, how he wants us to live, and what actually brings joy and peace and freedom and true satisfaction. Luke 11 verse 28 says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and then keep it. And then James 1 verse 22 says, don't just simply be hearers of it, but be doers of the word. So I think this is the most paramount formation that you can include in your life. Just a regular intake of God's word and engaging with it daily. Uh, Another one would be simply prayer. And a lot of you might even roll your eyes at at that, of like prayer. That seems so bottom shelf and so, uh, so elementary. But prayer, I think we forget, is communion with God, of being alone in conversation with God. Prayer is an expression of our relationship with him. Matthew 6, in verses 5 through 9, mentions this four times. First and foremost, that prayer is just simply expected of you. It uses language of saying, and when you pray, or but when you pray, or pray then like this, Luke 11, verse 9 says, and I tell you, ask, seek, and knock, Luke 18 verse 1 says, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. So prayer is expected of you, first and foremost. and It's an expression of your relationship with God. And it's also learned, right? I think a lot of us roll our eyes at prayer, but we simply just don't know how to pray. And the reason we don't know how to pray, as a friend always reminds me, is because we don't ever pray. And the best way to learn how to pray is to pray. Um... So that is another one. You've got engage with God's word, you've got prayer, and then I'm going to give you one that I think are all slightly different, but I'm just going to lump them up into one little bucket, and that's silence, solitude, and Sabbath. Again, we are very familiar with uh, the screens in front of us. We are very familiar with how busy and packed our schedules are and our calendars are. We barely see any white space and any margin. We have over hundreds of texts on our phone, missed calls, people wanting us here and people wanting us there, and we are just busy running around. We can't even fold our laundry. Silence, solitude, and Sabbath. Focusing your mind on God and resting your soul in the love and grace of what God has done for you through Christ is one of the most restorative things that you can do in your life. To just simply stop, step away from the chaos, rest, delight, and worship in the Lord. Without rhythms of silence and solitude and Sabbath, we can be active for sure, and we can be active for God even, but we're going to find out that we will also be drained and we will be shallow. Silence, solitude, Sabbath, all those things express worship to God, but they also express dependence on God, that we can't do this on our own. It reminds us simply that we're justified by faith, right? We, we didn't earn salvation because we did anything, but simply because Christ did it for us. It reminds us that he is the one who ultimately makes things happen, not, not us. And if Jesus did it, which you see over and over and over again in the Gospels, that he retreats to go be in prayer, he retreats to go be in silence and solitude, he, all of these things, if Jesus did it, then it has to be good enough for me too, right? I should probably do it. Um, and practices... Such as these, like silence, solitude, Sabbath, are some of the most restorative and freeing things to your soul. And Donald Whitney, again, this guy who wrote this book that I would love to give to all of you, when he speaks of the daily disciplines of silence alone, he says many battle to develop this daily or devotional habit because they lead such busy lives and face such a determined enemy who's aware of the stakes involved. He says, I think the devil, the enemy, 
has made it his business to monopolize on three elements, noise, hurry, and crowds. Satan, the enemy, is quite aware of the power of silence. Our days are usually filled with more than enough noise, plenty of hurry, and equally busy people. And unless we plan for daily times of solitary, solitary silence before the Lord, then these other things will rush in to fill our time like water into the Titanic. Talk about feeling suffocated and enslaved to something. You don't have to be. And here's the truth. All of these disciplines, all these things, you can't get these things wrong if your heart is longing for God and to be formed in the image of Jesus. Uh, you, you can't, don't let this turn into, again, the legalistic things of like, this is earning me something. You can't get these wrong. It's not about getting it right. You can't get them wrong if your heart is longing to know God and be formed into the image of Jesus. Uh, this guy named J.I. Packer, who I love, reminds us that we are called to pursue godliness through practicing the disciplines like these out of gratitude for the grace that has saved us and set us free, not as a self-justifying or self-advancing effort. And the other thing, and this is where I want to land, the other thing that I want you to know is that this kind of formation, this kind of spiritual formation is a process, right? It takes time. It's about partnering with God and repeatedly, consistently, over and over again, making yourself available to the Spirit's transforming power through these kinds of habits and spiritual disciplines. Spiritual formation, the Christian life, the way of Jesus, is all about a long, slow, and steady obedience in the same direction. The direction to look more like Jesus, to deny yourself even. And as one teacher puts it, this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. Christ shaping us, molding us, changing us, and forming us into his image so that we might be liberated to experience life with him, for him, through him, by him, and with him. And it is for this freedom that Christ has set us free. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we love you. Father, we are grateful to you for making yourself known to us. You did not have to. You could have left us in our sin and in our insecurities and in the things that once enslaved us, Lord, but you made yourself known to us, and you made a way for us to be free and to experience freedom from those things. Lord, and we cannot stop thanking you for that. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who made the way possible for dying the death that we deserved to bring us near to you again and be restored to relationship with you. Father, I just pray that as we sing this next song and as we sit here and we are just simply sung over maybe that you would bring to mind the things that are enslaving us and that you are asking us to step out of. Would you remind us of what your cross has done and what it looks like and what it means and what your resurrection means, Father, and that there is victory and life and freedom in relationship with you. Father, help us surrender what needs to be surrendered. Help us walk with you, by your spirit. We need you, we trust you, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.